All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We intend to look at verses 1 through 39 this morning. The topic we'll find there is this. David is stunned that none of the older men in Israel's army are willing to accept the challenge to fight the giant Goliath. The title of our message, You Fight Like an Old Man. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to break open your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that what transpires here would be spiritual in nature, uh, your heart to our heart, so that we would be more like Jesus and be more willing and able to reveal him to a, uh, a world, Lord, that is perishing for lack of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here, Lord, or in the fellowship hall or anywhere really on campus that does not know you, Lord, we ask that your spirit would do his work of convicting and convincing and drawing to Christ. It's through everlasting love, Lord, that you've drawn each and every one of us that does know you. And that same love is extended to those who don't. We pray, Lord, that you would do business with them. We ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Two relatively old men have won heavyweight boxing championships. George Foreman was 45 years old when he knocked out Michael Moorer to reclaim the title. Evander Holyfield, at age 47, just won the WBF title on April 10th, defeating Francois Botha. Their exploits give new meaning to the phrase, you fight like an old man. There is a realm, however, in which fighting like an old man is always guaranteed to bring defeat. It is the realm of the spirit, of walking with the Lord, of spiritual warfare. In the New Testament letter to the Colossians, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul said this, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. It describes our old way of living before we were Christians as the old man, urging us to rather yield to an entirely new way of living, the new man. On one level, these are things done for you by the Lord the moment you get saved. The old man is rendered impotent and you receive a new nature, a divine nature, the new man. On a practical level, you are to be renewed in knowledge. It describes the process of progressive change. Doctrinally, we call it sanctification by which the indwelling Holy Spirit is transforming you day by day. He does it by knowledge, that is, by you getting to know and know about Jesus more each day by interacting with him primarily in and through his word. In the realm of the spirit of walking with the Lord of spiritual warfare, we choose day by day and moment by moment whether to fight like the old man or like the new man. We're going to see this principle illustrated for us in this preface to David's facing Goliath. Two older men, Saul and Eliab, who ought to have challenged the Philistine giant, represent the old man. David, the unlikely champion, represents the new man renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you won't defeat giants if you fight like the old man 
Number two, you will defeat giants if you fight like the new man. Let's take a look at the characteristics of the old man in the first 30 verses. By the way, giants come in all shapes and sizes. We shouldn't think only in terms of occasional monumental spiritual challenges. That's the danger when you read about David and Goliath. It was just, I mean, it was one monumental challenge. But I think the illustration for us is that uh, for any of us, some seemingly minor struggle may be a giant issue that we face on a daily basis. And we need to be careful ministering one to another as well, because sometimes somebody will be going through something and they'll finally get it out to you. And you'll think, man, that is the that's the most petty thing I've ever heard of. That's nothing on the list of important things. I've got problems. You think you've got problems? I've got problems. But uh, it's all relative, isn't it? Uh, Something that you're struggling with, it's a giant to you. And so we can, you know, this isn't just for way in the future when some huge Goliath comes out of your garage. Uh, It's for right now for whatever you're going through. If we're not experiencing victory, a spiritual victory, perhaps we're still fighting like the old man with his characteristics, employing his tactics and strategies rather than those of the new man. And so let's get into it. Beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. They were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah. They drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side. Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. There was a valley between them. If you read the history, there was almost perpetual war between Israel and the Philistines. And some Bible commentators refer to the Philistines symbolically as representing the flesh and the constant warfare that the believer has with the flesh. It certainly reminds you of the ongoing struggle you face as a Christian between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians 5.17 reads like this. For the flesh, the old man, as it were, lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. There's no middle ground when you when you see how this is set up with uh, Israel on one side and the Philistines on the other. The battle below, there's no middle ground for compromise. It's one or the other, the flesh or the spirit. You're on one side or the other. We either bring forth the works of the flesh or we yield to the inner workings of the Spirit of God and we produce spiritual fruit. Verse 4, a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. He's over nine feet tall. His coat of armor weighed around 200 pounds, which was absolutely more than David even weighed. His spearhead alone weighed 20 pounds. He was an imposing warrior and he was intimidating. Verse eight. He stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, Goliath was a real warrior. He was a real giant of a man. What he illustrates for us is that our battles cannot be won using any of the natural means available to us. He's he's real, but he's exaggerated. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, he really was nine feet, nine inches tall. But at the same time, it's being presented in such a way that you think no one can really go against a guy like that. You're going to lose that every time. Uh, you know, not even Rocky Balboa could stand toe to toe with him just on a natural basis. And so the, he's being set up to where you look at him, you think, you know, I, if, if I have a giant like that in my life, there's no hope in my natural means. So whether it's an addiction or a life dominating sin, it is bigger than you are. There's no equipment in the world that can help you defeat it. You must trust in the spirit of God as David will. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed, and greatly afraid. They were afraid because it says they heard these words of the Philistine. They ought instead to be hearing in their hearts the word of the Lord. When the words in the world Crowd out the word of the Lord, fear and dismay quickly follow. Verse 12. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now, verse 15 is a footnote. It reminds you that in the chapter previous to this, David had been called for to come into the court of Saul whenever this distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And he would play his harp and uh, this music would soothe Saul and it would drive away the, this evil spirit. And apparently David went back and forth from the tent of Saul to taking care of his father's sheep. And certainly now he had returned home while his three older brothers had followed King Saul into battle. And so verse 16, and the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Now, you're, you're, you know, you read the word 40 and it, you're caught by that because a lot of significant spiritual things are associated with 40 days in the Bible. Just for example, Moses was on the mountain twice for a period of 40 days. It took the spies 40 days to search out the promised land and then return with its fruit. And Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness. There's other 40 day episodes with guys like Elijah and whatnot, but it's a significant number. And so the writer, the Holy Spirit, is telling us to pause and consider this. And I believe that in our context, we're being shown that David had 40 days to prepare for this encounter. Only David didn't know that he was preparing for this encounter. God knew and was giving him 40 days. For David's part, 
He was just going about his everyday mundane routine of taking care of his father's sheep while his oldest brothers were away uh, in the glory, as it were, of the battle. And it reminds us that we ought to consider ourselves in spiritual training, being prepped by God for what is coming in a day or in a week or longer. In other words, we're always readying ourselves. It's not a period of 40 days, but our entire walk with the Lord uh, is a time when God is always teaching us, always preparing us, always getting us ready for something that's coming. It's, it's a comfort, isn't it, to know that God knows what's coming in your life? Uh, and, and I can be ready for that. You can be ready for that, even though you don't know what it is. You have no idea what it is. And sometimes we need to be ready for blessings as well. We immediately think of, you know, these giants like Goliath who are in the negative sense. But I know a lot of Christians who have stumbled and fallen because they've been abundantly blessed. Blessing sometimes is worse than buffeting. The children of Israel in the Old Testament, man, when God blessed them, they thought, hey, this is great. Let's set up some idols. Let's invite the world into the tabernacle and into the temple. And so blessing can also present its problems. Think of yourself every day as preparing. And not to put a burden on you. Maybe you get up too late. Your alarm doesn't go off. You miss your devotions. Catch them later. But the idea is to be readying yourself for the battle that's coming. Verse 17, then Jesse said to his son, David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now, Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now, that's kind of a uh, an interesting statement, isn't it? It's almost comical. Were they fighting with the Philistines? Well, at first glance, it seems they weren't fighting at all because they were refusing Goliath's challenge. It appears from the narrative that every day the army would get up uh, on Israel's side. The army would get up on the Philistine side and they'd get ready for battle. Maybe they'd do some saber rattling. I don't know. Shout insults, you know, trash talk each other. Who knows? And then at some point, Goliath would be done getting dressed. Uh, and he would walk out and issue this challenge and, and that would be the end of it until the evening when he would come out and issue this challenge again. And so from our point of view, you look at that and you think there's no fighting going on at all. But the text says they were fighting with the Philistines. And the truth is they were fighting, only they were fighting like the old man fights. They had adopted a battle strategy of doing nothing. Faced with this seemingly overwhelming enemy. Their spiritual strategy was to hold their ground and do nothing, I guess, and hope it went away. Maybe a guy that big is going to have an aneurysm. Maybe you can work him up, you know. I mean, even in those days, you know, big, you know, extremely giant people don't normally live very long. If you're nine feet, nine inches tall, you have a limited lifespan. Maybe they thought they could wait him out. I don't know, but this was a strategy because this is how they chose to fight Goliath. The problem is you can never stand still and hope to hold spiritual ground. In fact, you always lose ground. Charles Swindoll points out that by the time you get to verse 25, Goliath is said to have come up against the Israelites. 
At the beginning, he says, come down and fight with me, meaning in the neutral valley. But towards the end, it says he had come up against them. And the idea here seems to be that every day he got a little bit closer. Not that he was afraid, but he just kept coming closer and closer as a spiritual illustration for us into the valley, across the valley. Now he was climbing up the other side. And it's telling us that you can't stand still in the Christian life. You have to move forward. Stir up the gift that is in you. Run the race. Exert every spiritual effort in your walk with the Lord. Verse 20. So David rose early in the morning. He left the sheep with a keeper, took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, give him his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Now, you understand that Saul, as king, ought to have gone out against Goliath. He didn't match up well against the giant, but from a natural point of view, he was the tallest man In Israel, when we're first introduced to Saul, he stands head and shoulders, it says, above all the other Israelites. He is the Israeli champion. And it is his job, it is his duty as the king in those days to go out against this warrior. In the life of a believer, to lead always means to serve. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but what? to be the servant of all. A believer who only wants to lead without really serving, that's a believer that's living like the old man. They believe they've come to some point in their life where they don't need to do this kind of service anymore or things are beneath them. Sadly, over the years, I've encountered some people, they they always want to be doing something in front of everybody, teaching everybody, taking the lead. Remember a conversation I had not too long ago, and uh, you know, and I, I, I don't like doing this, but I had to say, look, here's the problem. I've never seen you serve anyone. Well, wait a minute, no, I do this. And I said, no, you don't misunderstand. I've never seen you do anything menial, even when it could have been done. I've never seen you serve. Greg Laurie, who you're all familiar with, I love his stories of when he first came to the Lord and knew that the Lord was going to use him mightily. And he went down to Calvary Costa Mesa to be used of the Lord. And uh, Pastor Chuck's assistant pastor at that time, a legendary man by the name of Romaine, says, you want to be used of the Lord? He goes, yeah, I'm ready to be used of the Lord. He handed him a broom. He said, go out and sweep something. And, uh, you know, and, and you think, oh, that's kind of mean. No, no. What a great and valuable lesson that is. Uh, If you're not willing to serve, you can't lead. This translates not just in the spiritual realm of the church, but in your home. Guys, you know, I could hammer on you a little bit. You guys want to be the leaders of your home? You want to be the head of the home over your wife? What does that mean? It means you serve your wife. Oh, why did I say that? Anyway, (laughs) 
I said you guys. But anyway, uh, that's what it means. So you want to lead, you serve in the Christian. It's totally the opposite in the world, isn't it? It always amazes me that the guys and gals with the most experience do the least amount of work. I mean, but that's the way the world is. I've got all this experience. I should be the one doing this. But I'm going to leave it for the newbie, for the rookie, because I've earned my desk. I've earned my window office or whatever it is. I've done that. Even though I could do it better, uh, I'm going to let you do it. In the church, it's upside down. You want to lead, you need to be the servant of all. In place of obedience, Saul sought a substitute. He was looking for somebody else to do his work. You know, a few weeks ago, we did that series on PG&F, Pray, Give, and Fast. And we talked about just some basic disciplines of the Christian life, praying and giving and fasting. And I said at the beginning of these studies in, in the life of David, if we see any similarities to Saul, we need to deal with that because you don't want to be like Saul at all. He, he's just not a good role model. Uh, and so take any one of those disciplines. If I am not participating in a spiritual discipline that God has given me as a basic tenet of the Christian faith, what I'm actually doing is saying, I am looking for a substitute, somebody else to do that. I'm not really praying. I'm glad other people pray. I'm not really giving. I'm glad other people give. I'm not really fasting. I'm so glad other people fast. They are my substitutes. Now, don't be burdened. When we did PG&F, we talked about the fact, take fasting, for example. Not everybody is able to fast. There's health concerns and other concerns. And so nobody should take this on as a burden and think, well, I, I'm not fasting and I've never fasted long. Enough. That's not it. But in this time, when you're spending time with the Lord and the Lord is showing you things that are basic to the Christian life and you say, well, I'm just not going to do that or I'm not able to do that or whatever. What you're really saying is, Lord, raise up a substitute for me. So that I don't have to do that. And, and uh, that's what Saul did. He said, I should be doing this, but I'm looking for a sub. Saul adopted strategies from the world around him. He offered riches, his daughter, which really meant position, because when you were married to the king's daughter, it gave you position in the kingdom. And exemption from taxes. Wow. He could have been an American revolutionary. But anyway, uh, it's sad when we try to entice folks to serve or bribe them when offering our lives as living sacrifices is what we ought to be emphasizing. You know, sometimes we pass on certain programs that come through the church. Uh, not every program is an evil thing. I don't want to come across that way, but a lot of times there's programs. And when you get into these programs, what they are is they're offering certain enticements to Christians to do what Christians ought to normally do because they love Jesus Christ. And it's an end justifies the means kind of thing. If I can get you to pray more by enticing you or give more by having a campaign or to fast by doing this, then that's going to be good, isn't it? And the answer is no. Not if it's a technique or a tactic borrowed from the world in order to get you to do what you ought to do. So how do you do those things? You look at Jesus. You return to your first love. Remember, Jesus came to the church at Ephesus and he says, I love you guys. You're doing a great work, but I have one thing against you. You have left your first love for me. And so the goal is always to bring people back to first love, because when you fall in love with Jesus again, all of these things fade away. There's no issue 
you give and you pray and you fast and you serve and you do all the things that the Lord has called you to do out of love, not out of bribery. Verse 26, then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him as the first ones did. Now, we're going to talk about David in a moment. But first, we're going to see some more traits of the old man in Big Brother Eliab. When we read the characteristics of the old man in Colossians, first on the list was anger. And that's exactly how Eliab is described. He went on to display a wide range of fleshly characteristics. Eliab served under Saul. He represents the kind of believer that is produced by those who walk according to the old man. They have a million excuses as to why they aren't doing anything to further the kingdom. They're full of criticism for those who are. They think themselves somehow superior. Eliab could have accepted the challenge. In fact, he should have. David shamed him. Don't be put to shame because of your preference for the old man and his ways and find yourself lashing out at those who are doing the work of the Lord. It's easy to, to sit around and look at somebody and say, well, I, I wouldn't do it just like that. I, that's not quite right. Well, what are you doing? I'm not doing anything. But if I did anything, I would do it right. Uh, just let the Lord's servant alone and worry about yourself. Now, enough of that. You get the idea. Let's see David and the new man and how he operates. These are the first words David speaks in 1 Samuel. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? How do you read that? You know, you realize when you read, you don't have the inflection or the attitude and, and it's kind of left up to you. And so how would you read that? Do you read that as what? What shall be done? As if David, you know, he's been trying to figure out a way his whole life to get out of paying taxes. You know, hey, wow, that sounds great. Or do you hear him saying, what? As if, you know, is that crazy or what? Here's how I hear him saying this. What? What? Hasn't anybody gone out against this Philistine? What do you mean you're offering incentives? To do what obviously needs to be done and could be done by anyone, I'll do it. That's how I see David. And that's exactly why he goes from man to man. And this is why big brother Eliab is upset because it really calls him out. David's like, what are you talking about? I thought you guys were fighting down here. And what an opportunity. Is one guy against one guy? Of course we're going to win that. We represent the armies of the living God. And so this David is uh, he's incensed. Now, remember, I mentioned earlier that Saul and the Israelites heard the words of Goliath. David had been 40 days out in the fields hearing the word of the Lord. And thus his first and immediate response was faith rather than fear. So important that we're constantly in the word of God. So we hear these words that have been hidden in our heart when the world starts to speak to us. 
Verse 31. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. What a beautiful verse. David presents himself as a servant for the sake of every other man in that camp. He was willing to put it all on the line for the sake of others. But even more than that, notice two things. These were not the kind of guys that inspired you to risk everything. They were disobedient at best, antagonistic at worst. David served unto the Lord and not unto these men. Quite honestly, if I'm David and I go down there and I realize that I'm filled with the spirit and I can take Goliath like that. And these guys start treating me like this. Hey, forget you. I'll just go fight lions and bears again. I don't need this. And sadly, I've talked to a lot of people over the years. At least they get into the attitude, this old man kind of an attitude that I don't want to serve these people anymore. They don't deserve to be served because look at them. I'm not going to risk my life. I'm not going to sacrifice for them. David looked beyond that as every servant must to the Lord and said, this is what I was called to do and I'll do it as unto the Lord. And second, David had not fought with a Philistine before. He fought lions and bears, but a nine foot nine inch warrior. He hadn't been through that training, but he was willing to trust the Lord to believe that God had prepared him for this very moment. Facing overwhelming odds and faced with underwhelming companions, David stepped up. Verse 33, Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're a youth. He's a man of war from his youth. A little bit more Saul regarding the old man. The old man walks in the flesh, sees only things from a natural worldly perspective. He's never open to what the spirit might be doing. He applies his own wisdom and not God's leading. Saul was right from a strictly natural perspective. But when you factor in the Spirit of God, he couldn't be any more wrong, which is why we always have to pray and seek the Lord because we can't know what to do on a natural level. This was the first lesson we learned as we encountered David and his anointing. You, you need to seek the Lord. On a natural basis, Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall. He's probably seven feet tall when he was 15 He's been training his whole life. He knows Taekwondo and every other doe there is. I mean, he's a warrior. He's battle scarred. He's killed hundreds of men, probably. His own people are afraid of him. Later on, we'll find out he has four brothers as big as he is. I mean, this is an imposing situation. David's out with the sheep. From a natural point of view, this is a mismatch of biblical proportions. It's terrible. And Saul says it. Yeah, and Saul is right, but he's wrong. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, David never mentions his skill with the sling and stones. I sometimes read this and I think that this is how he killed the lion and the bear. 
you know, they came, they grabbed the sheep, and he was deadly accurate with that thing, and he knocked them, you know, got up on a ridge or whatever. But here he says, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. He did hand-to-paw combat with these animals. And this is what it's telling us. David is declaring that the Lord came upon him and gave him supernatural ability to kill these animals. It had nothing to do with his skill, only his obedience. And so he knew that the same thing could and would happen when he went out against the Philistine. Now, he would use means, and we'll talk about that. But nevertheless, God is the one who would win this for him. Charles Spurgeon wrote, if I can find it, there it is. Do you know the way in which God rewards his faithful servants here on earth? He does it usually by enabling them to do it in the future, to do something more than they have done before. You have fought in a battle. Take this as your reward. You will fight in another one tomorrow. David keeps referring to Goliath as this uncircumcised Philistine. Physical circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant relationship an Israelite had with God. It's David's way of saying, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He understood that one man with God, one believer, could stand against any odds. Verse 38, so Saul clothed David with his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. Saul just wouldn't give up. He just didn't get it. The old man just won't give up. He'll never get it. You must constantly determine to yield to the Spirit of God rather than give in to the flesh. Verse 39, David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. I don't fault David for initially putting on the armor. I was thinking about this and I realized there are times when for the greater good, you might go along up to a point with something you don't feel entirely comfortable with. For example, when evangelistic crusades come, uh, when Harvest Crusade or Franklin Graham comes or something, sometimes you end up working with certain groups that you wouldn't normally work with on, on a, a Christian uh, project. They're not heretics. They're not... Uh, you know, false teachers necessarily. They're Christians, but some of them are more given to fleshly techniques and things like that. And just on a day-to-day basis, you, you love them, but you don't really cooperate with them. But for the sake of the gospel, you might say, okay, we're trying to get people saved. If we're all just focused on the issue of salvation, I can do that. Well, what happens is everybody has to draw the line somewhere. Some people are way over here. They say, we don't work with anybody. We're the only ones going to heaven anyway. Uh, and so, you know, and then there's a bunch of us in the middle and then there's people who work with anybody, uh, whether they're even Christians or not. And so we do draw lines like this. And so I want to cut David some slack. David does show them, however, that the armor is too restrictive. And that is a gracious way of throwing off the trappings of the old man. If you're a person that walks in the spirit and is led by the spirit. There are always going to be times when those who are not Christians who are not are going to try and get you into their mold or shape you according to their way, get you to do what they want you to do. And you might have to draw a line. But the best way is to just throw that off by showing them 
what life in the spirit is life, the joy of it, the freedom of it, how God works in it. Just be who you are and they will want the same thing. David took them off. Remember, we are to put off the old man and put on the new man. Beautiful illustration. I share this quote. The man's name is J.C. Philpott. He wrote back in the late 1800s, says the new man has the same faculties of a man as the old man has. He has eyes and by these eyes he sees Jesus. He has ears and with those ears he hears the gospel of salvation and drinks in the precious sound. He has lips and with these lips he blesses God. He has a tongue and with his tongue he praises the name of the Lord, speaks of the glory of his kingdom, talks of his power. He has hands which are open to bestow liberally on the poor and needy. And he has feet which are swift to walk, yes, to run in the way of God's commandments when he has enlarged his heart. Thus, the old man employs every member in the service of sin and the new man employs every member in the service of God. Now, as when we are under the influence of the old man, we do or at least we are tempted to do what he may suggest. So when we are under the influence of the new man, then we gladly do what he inclines us to do according to the will and the word of God. We are to fight like the new man. And whenever we do, the giants will fall. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. David is such a great example here, especially at the uh, inception of his uh, coming into Scripture and coming into his own. And we're learning a lot about the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-empowered life. I pray that we would continue to do that. Lord, more specifically, uh, for the believers here who are facing giants of every shape and size, I pray that we would, Lord, hear your word rather than the words of the enemy, the words of the world, that we would yield the members of our flesh to you rather than to sin, and that we would walk in a powerful victory, Lord, a spiritual victory. Whether it's a time of blessing or buffeting, we would know the victory of the Lord. And again, Lord, if there are those here that don't know you, never received your son as their savior, They don't have eternal life in the sense of having their sins forgiven. I pray that they would come forward as we close. And they pray with the guys, Lord, to receive Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.